So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, verses 18 to 22. The Word of God. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when Noah waited patiently and the days, but I'm sorry, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, and of course that's Noah's family, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Amen. This passage in many ways reads like a statement of faith, doesn't it? It's a declaration of faith. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again. And now He is seated in the heavenlies. And we've sung a lot of songs declaring our faith. And, and I've entitled my mes message, Christ Victorious. Because Christ is the victor. He has gained access into the heavens and all authority and all power has been given to Him. And I think that really is the message of um, this passage. Now there's this, almost I would call it an interlude, where Peter talks about interesting things, doesn't he? I mean, he talks about Jesus in the Spirit going and preaching to spirits who were disobeyed God at the time of Noah. And then he talks about water, which symbolizes the, the water through which Noah was saved. The ark floated and says, which symbolizes baptism, which now saves. What does that mean? You know? But I need you to keep your eyes on, 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 on the fo focus on what's really most important. That is the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the victory of Jesus. That is, that is what we understand. Now, Paul said at one time, point in Timothy, it said to Timothy that some people are always learning, yet never acknowledge the truth. You can, you can, you can keep learning what Peter meant with this passage, when he talks about these spirits, what spirits and what did Jesus proclaim? You can spend all your life trying to figure this out and never and miss the point. And the point is this, that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And He now sits victorious above all and in all. Nevertheless, um, Peter does talk about this, and so we'll try to answer the question, what actually does Peter mean with this? But let's start out with verse 18 where Peter looks at the death of Jesus. So, for Christ died for sins. Christ died for our sins. There's so much we can say about the death of Jesus and what it means for us. Um, I just want to point out one scripture that spoke to me in my Bible re reading recently as I'm going through the book of Ezekiel. Um, in, the, in Ezekiel chapter 18, God says to Ezekiel that the soul that sins is the one who will die. The soul of the person 
that sins is the one who will die. So basically, God tells Ezekiel, every human being will die for their own sin. You're not going to die for the sin of someone else that he committed against you. You're not going to die for what someone else did, but you're going to die for what you did. And Romans tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. So we all must die. Because the soul that sins must die, God says. And so Jesus came and in his death took our guilt upon himself. And we know it goes on and are freely justified by the grace of God, as Paul declares in Romans. In, in Ezekiel, here's what God says to Ezekiel at the end of the chapter 18. He cries out and says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. I, I, I don't want you to die. My goal is not for you to die. I, I want life. So repent, live. That's his call for us. At the end of the book of John, John tells us the purpose of his writing is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and through faith in him have life. So God's desire for us is life. And so Jesus died that we can have life. That's the first part of, of this declaration of the statement of faith, which we believe that Jesus' death creates, gives us life, new life in Jesus. But then he goes on and says, he did so once and for all. You need to understand that a lot of what Peter is talking about here is sacrificial language. And you need to understand the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, people had to sacrifice for their guilt. When they committed a sin, something had to die. So, so they sacrificed an animal on their behalf, which laid their sin upon the animal. And that animal would die on their behalf. And so they, had to do, they had to do so over and over and over again. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says, which interprets the sacrificial system for us. And it explains it for us in Christ Jesus, because Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. That we no longer have to do this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 says, Unlike the other high priests, Jesus, who is our high priest, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. So the priests of the Old Testament had to do what? They had to, have make, they had to offer sacrifices. They had to make sacrifices first for themselves, and then for the people. How many times did they have to do this? Day after day after day. After day, because there was no end to sin, there was no end to sacrifices. Now Jesus came and he offered up himself once and for all. Jesus is enough. The sacrifice that Jesus made upon the cross is enough for you. And it's enough for all of us. That's what Peter is declaring here. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 he says that Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, because they can actually not take away the sins that we have. But he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. This passage talks about what Jesus did between the cross and the resurrection. What did Jesus do? 
He entered into the most holy place, carrying his own blood, making atonement for us. So the moment that Jesus died, after Jesus has, had died, what happened? Jesus went through the curtain, and that's why the curtain tore. Matthew tells us that the curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. And Jesus went into God's presence, carrying his own blood, pouring it out on the atonement cover as an atonement for our sins. And did, he did so once, and it's good for all. That is the sacrifice of Jesus that he made for us. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, we die once and then the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So the death of Jesus is enough. So Peter is saying Jesus died for our sins. He died once and for all. And then he says the righteous for the unrighteous or the, the just for the unjust. It, again, this is sacrificial language because in the sacrificial system, any sacrifice that was made had to be what? It had to be pure. It had to be blameless. You could not offer an animal that was impure, had any defect. You could not offer that because Jesus was pure. Jesus was blameless, and he pointed to Jesus. Any sacrifice that made, was made ultimately pointed to Jesus, the righteous one who died on our behalf. We are the unrighteous. He is the righteous. Psalm 49 verse 7 says that no man can redeem the life of another. You cannot redeem someone else. None of us can. We cannot pay the price for sin for another person. So when Jesus paid the price for us, who paid the price? The Son of God. So it points to Jesus being the Son of God who died on our behalf. So we cannot redeem the life of another person, neither can we redeem our own life. We cannot redeem our own life because we are wicked. We're unrighteous. We're unjust. And, and Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous or the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's us, isn't it? All of us, because we are sinners, are unrighteous and cannot be justified on our, of ourselves. Any religion that tells you you can wake, work your way to earn God's grace they're lying to you. It's a lie. You cannot. It's not possible for us to earn our salvation. It's through the death of Jesus only that we can be forgiven. So Peter points in the first part, he points to the work of Christ, doesn't he? He points to the work of Christ who died for our sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then he says, he goes on and says, to bring you to God so that we can now enter into God's presence. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And, then, and it goes on. It says, through whom? Through the Spirit. Also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Listen to this statement from the Apostles' Creed. This is the Apostles' Creed, part of the Apostles' Creed which says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and was buried. Then he descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. 
Scripture points out that Jesus, when he was dead, did not just simply lay in the grave, but that in his spirit he did two things. First, he made atonement for, his, for our sins. So that he entered into the holies of holies before, before God the Father. He poured out his blood. So he ascended into the heavens, making atonement for our sins. But then also he descended to the dead. If you would please skip to chapter 4. Now Derek will speak on this next week. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, it sort of connects with, uh, with this message also. Go chapter 4, verse 6. There Peter says, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So the gospel was preached to the dead, he's saying. So that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Who is Peter talking about here? I believe Peter is talking about the saints of old. He's talking about those who died in the Old Testament, men and women of faith who were looking forward to the cross. Job said what? I know my Redeemer lives. He says he will come. I know my Redeemer lives. So he was looking forward to Jesus, he was looking forward to the cross, and so was Abraham and Noah and, and, and David, all the saints of old. And the moment when Jesus died, what, what else happened? The graves opened up. Matthew tells us that the, in Jerusalem, the graves opened up, and the saints of old came alive. So Jesus went, and he preached to the dead. He preached them. To the, he told them, here I am, here I am. I am the Messiah. I am the one you have been waiting for. Now, we look back to the cross, and we understand through the cross what Jesus did for us. They didn't know about the cross yet. All the saints, all the believers of the Old Testament, they didn't know about the cross. They did not know how God would fulfill his promises to us. So Jesus descended and preached the good news to the dead. The graves opened up. Heaven is open for them. So that's chapter 4. But what about chapter 3 there when he talks about the spirits? Peter is very specific in, in, in saying that these are spirits um, who disobeyed at the time when Noah was building the ark. So what is he talking about here? Let me just say a few words to the word uh, spirit first. The word spirit uh, can be used in four different ways. It can be used and it can simply mean wind. Like when... when, um, uh, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus and he told him, the wind blows. You do not know where it comes from. We do not know where it's going. That's the same word. The w wind and spirit means the same thing. It's only one word in both the Hebrew and the Greek language. It means the same thing. So basically, Jesus is telling, telling Nicodemus, you do not know how God moves. You do not need to know, but you do need to experience the moving of his spirit. You do need to be born again. Then, and most of the time, the word spirit is used for God. I would say 80% of all the times in, in Scripture, the word spirit refers to God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Thirdly, it can also refer to unclean spirits, evil spirits, or demonic spirits. So the word is used in reference to evil spirits. And fourthly, and this is very rare, that the word is actually used in reference to human spirits, that we have a spirit. It appears so in the letters of Paul. In the Gospels, it doesn't really appear except for one time, 
When Mary prayed, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's the only time. So my question is here, when we look at this passage in chapter 3, what kind of spirits did Jesus preach to? Were these human spirits or were these other kinds of spirits? Because it's not just one, time, not one way that this word can be used. Now, it could be fallen spirits, fallen angels, because later in his second book, uh, Peter talks about what happened to the fallen angels. When, when angels fell and became demons, what happened to them? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude says the same thing. Jude chapter, verse 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That is why, remember the story of the garrison? Jesus went across the lake, and there was this, this crazy dude, crazy man, like behaving, like running around naked, breaking chains, living in graves. Jesus cast out demons from him, and there was a legion. There were so many of them, they couldn't be counted, legions of demons. And, and, and when Jesus cast them out, they begged him, please do not send us into the abyss, because they knew that ultimately their destiny would be what? Hell. So is that who Peter is talking about? We don't really know. There's one more uh, interpretation I would like to give you, which is kind of strange, um, but it makes sense to me. And, and, and let me just say this. I'm, I'm just guessing here, okay? Again, let me make it very clear to me. The emphasis of this, of this passage is the death of Jesus, his resurrection, that he is victorious. When it comes to this, we're just trying to understand what actually happened. But there's this one passage in, in, in Genesis chapter 6. So this is the story of Noah now. We do go to the time of Noah now because he's making reference to the, the spirits that were disobedient at the time of Noah. When you go to chap, Genesis chapter 6, there's this interesting passage, kind of strange. Now, you've probably come across this and wondered, what in the world does this mean? So in Genesis chapter 6, it starts out saying that when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them. Well, so far, so good, you know. Okay, so people multiplied. They had children. They had boys also. But it points out they had daughters. And then it goes on, verse 12, 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Who are these sons of God who went and married uh, women and, of course, had children with them also? Who were they? There's a book that is not included in Scripture, but that the Jews would be familiar with. And that's called the Book of Enoch. Jude actually makes reference to this book. Jude, verses, Jude verse, verse 14 and 15, he says, here's what Enoch says. So Jude looks to the book of Enoch. So they were familiar with the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch tells you what happens in Genesis chapter 6. According to the book of Enoch, some angels disobeyed God. They desired to be with human beings, and they sinned that way, and they cohabitated with women, out of which came the giants of old. 
according to the book of Enoch. Uh, it's very interesting. I've traveled a little bit in my life, and I've also um, learned a few languages. You know, as far as I know, I think there's every language in the world has a concept of giant. We know about giants. We're not just talking about somebody who's seven foot tall, you know. We're talking about giants, tall, tall beings. And according to the book of Enoch, they are the result of this cohabitation between angels and human beings. Here's what Enoch says in chapter 21. These are those of the stars which have transgressed the commandment of the Most High God and are here bound until the infinite number of the days of their crimes be completed. Uriel, one of the holy angels who was with me, answered and said, Enoch, why art thou alarmed and amazed at this terrific place, at the sight of this place of suffering? This, he said, is the prison of the angels, and here they are kept forever. So it is possible that both Jude and Peter knew the, about the book of Enoch, and he's making reference to these angels that fell. And so Jesus now went and preached to them. Now here's the point. I don't actually, I'm not sure what spirits they were. It doesn't matter, but I think what Jesus preached, he didn't preach salvation, he preached judgment. Because they disobeyed God to God. They disobeyed God. And you, see, you have to understand something about the cross, the cross of Jesus. It's not just a place of salvation. It is also the place of judgment. At the cross, we can not only be saved, we can also be judged. People who reject the cross will be judged. So Jesus went and preached salvation to those who were looking forward to the cross. And he preached judgment to those who disobeyed and rejected the message. Because in the days of Noah, Noah was, was doing what? He was building the ark, and through it he was proclaiming judgment which, which was to come. I'm sure he also said something. We, we do not know what the message was that Noah had. But they disobeyed. They rejected. And so Jesus went and proclaimed both salvation and judgment. The cross can be both. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. There's a little town in, um, in the Black Forest. Um, it's called Treburg or Triburg. And uh, in that little town, there is a, is a chapel. It's a Catholic chapel, so it has lots of drawings and pictures of whatever, of Mary and, and so on. But in the middle of that, that chapel, a cross is mounted to the ceiling. And it's free hanging in the middle of the chapel. Above the chapel, um, excuse me, above the cross is a, is a clock mounted that ticks. So when tourists see this, they're kind of curious, what is this clock? Why is this clock hanging above the cross? And so one of the tourists went up to a, 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 a cuckoo clock maker, you know, because they're famous there in the Black Forest, and asked him, why is there a clock above the cross? You know, well, that's easy. Because the moment you look at the cross, your hour of decision has come. What's it going to be for you? What are you going to make with Jesus, you know? When you look to the cross, is Jesus the point of salvation or the point of judgment? So the clock reminds us, basically, of the hour of salvation, which is to come. So Jesus came, and he preached salvation and judgment. 
Then Peter goes on and says, um, he talks about this ark, the ark that he, Noah built, saying, in it, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism, and that now saves you also. This is a little bit of a troublesome passage, isn't it? The question, does baptism actually save? Do you have to be baptized in order to be saved? Isn't that what Peter is saying here in many ways? Well, actually, if you ask me, he's not saying that baptism saves. He says the water saves. It's the water symbolizes, and he's using symbolic language. The word is anti-type. It's a type of baptism. He points to baptism. But what saves is the water, and the water represents Jesus the ark represents Jesus for that matter. The ark that Noah built is a figure of Jesus because Jesus is the ark of salvation through which we are saved. Remember, Noah built this ark. He put one door in. It's the only way in. And so Jesus says, I am the door. If you go through me, you shall find life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way through which you can be saved. So he points to Jesus as our Savior, the water also points to Jesus because he is the living water, isn't he? He was traveling through Samaria and he came, he, it was hot, he was tired, so he sat, at a, he sat down at a, at a well. He sent his disciples ahead of him to buy some food in the town. And so while he was waiting there, a woman came up to draw water from the well and Jesus asked her, give me something to drink. She looks at him and says, how come you're talking to me? Because I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. We don't talk with each other. And Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you water to drink, living water. You would never be thirsty again. And so the woman says, give me that kind of water. I want it. See, Jesus is the water of salvation, the living water that we need to receive. And in, in John chapter 7, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow. The water symbolizes baptism. It even uses symbolic language because Jesus is our Savior. It's through Him that we are saved. And baptism represents the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And let me just say this, baptism, the word baptism, um, I looked this up this week, in Greek, means to submerge, to immerse, to dip under. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. It doesn't mean to sprinkle, okay? Like, like the Catholics believe in regenerational baptism, like a child needs to be baptized, otherwise he can't go to heaven. Uh, first and foremost, you would have to dip it, okay? You have to dip the child, because that's what baptism means, okay? It's the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, so... It's not the act of baptism which saves. It's Jesus who saves. And we proclaim his death. We proclaim his resurrection in baptism that we belong to him. So baptism, is it important? Absolutely. It is important because it proclaims our faith to the world. And then the last part then is in verse 22. Um, Peter then talks about... Um, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Jesus is victorious. He is now seated in the heavens. All 
Paul says in Philippians, At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Whatever is in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Meaning angels, humans, and spirits. They all have to proclaim and confess that Jesus is Lord. And now I want you to point, uh, pay attention to one thing. That the context of this declaration of faith, of this statement of faith is what? Peter's teaching about suffering. So verse 14, if you look back, chapter 3, verse 14, it says, If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Verse 17, right before verse 18, he says, If you suffer for doing what is right. So the context is, is suffering. See, here's what Peter's doing. He's telling the church, he's telling the believers, you are suffering. But suffering is not the last thing. Jesus died, for Christ died, so Jesus also suffered, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not the cross. The end of the story is the victory of Jesus. That Jesus is now victorious. He rose again, he's now victorious, and all... He has been given all authority and power. And so he's giving the church the vision to understand what's coming. Even though you may be suffering right now, but this is not the end goal. You will be with God in heaven. All authority and power has been given to him. I'm going to tell you a little story here before we wrap up. Um, talking about victory. Talking about Who's, who's king, you know? In the English language, we have the Webster Dictionary. It was, I think it was like started in 200 or so years ago. In the German language, we have what's called the Duden. The Duden was written by Konrad Duden because that was his name. And so he, he made a dictionary of the German language, and he also simplified the German language, the spelling of the German language. And then he dedicated it to the emperor of Germany because that was roughly around 1901 when he dedicated it to the Germ uh, emperor of Germany and, and, and gave it to him. Now, one of the things, one of the spelling that he simplified is he took out the H after the T because the German language does not have the TH sound. That's why I'm struggling sometimes to remember to say it correctly, you know. I say that instead of that, you know, because German doesn't have that sound. I, I have to consciously work at it, you know. So he just took it out. We don't need an H after the T, T because it doesn't exist. Except for one word. There's only one word in the German language that has an H after the T. And that's the word throne. Thrown. It's the only word. You know why? Because when he showed it to the emperor, he looked at it and said, you are not going to touch my throne. You're not going to touch my throne. Okay? So the spelling stay T-H-R-O-N. You're not going to touch the throne of Jesus. Nobody ever will touch the throne of Jesus because he is established King of kings and Lord of lords. No one, no one will ever touch him. He is Lord. He is King. That is the faith. That's the hope that we have. In Psalm chapter 2, um, says that the kings of the earth, you know, the kings and the emperor, like this emperor William of Germany, they take a stand against the Lord and the rulers of the world against his anointed one, which is Jesus, 
to break the chains and to throw off the fetters. We don't like you. We don't want you to be God. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. Man wants to be free from God. And how does God respond to them? Remember that? He laughs. He laughs. He says, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. Nothing's going to change that. Jesus is king of kings and lord of, lord of lords. He is victorious. All power and glory has been given to him. Everything is submitted to him. Will you submit to him? Psalm 2 ends with these words, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And take your refuge in him. So our response to Jesus can be that we either kiss him and say, Lord, I love you, I submit myself to you. Or that we can live in disobedience to him. But Jesus is victorious. All power and all authority has been given to him. What, what a message to a suffering church. A church that was being persecuted by Nero. Who caused many to be killed and die for their faith. To understand this is not the last thing. Because Jesus is king. He is Lord of lords. And because of that, I can endure suffering because I know that I will be with him. Let us pray.